Thank you so much for being here on this sunny day, and you decided to, to listen to someone talk for an hour, so I appreciate that. It's so green. I love Ireland. I've been down to, to Dublin a few times, but never up to Northern Ireland, and it is gorgeous, absolutely beautiful, especially when you have the blue skies, too. Though. Um, so I'm a writer and a teacher, and um, I've written primarily for the youth market. I've written for companies like Disney and Lego and um, for the Los Angeles Times, which is our local um, paper in the U.S., and I've written four novels for kids. And last October, I had the privilege of going to um, Sydney, Australia. And it was, um, I was part of the media at the, the international premiere of a show called Stranger Things. And Stranger Things, do you have that in Northern Ireland? It's a huge show all over the world and apparently in Australia too, because that's where they had one of the premieres. They had like three different premieres in different locations. So Netflix, the company that puts on the show, must have spent, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars because they rented out the entire Sydney Opera House. And they had decorated it, uh, the interior, like 1980s small town USA, which is the setting of the show. And it was, you'd walk in, they had an old 80s arcade, they had 80s music playing, they had actors dressed up like the characters. Um, it was really incredible, it was kind of cool too. And uh, the place was packed, it was sold out, and every seat was full and with excited fans. And as I started interviewing the fans for this um, project I'm working on, um, every single pan fan was usually around college age, high school, some of them were dressed in costume, and they kept telling me, like, I really connect with the characters. You know, these characters resonate with me, and they're going through some of the same things that, you know, that I go through in my life, and it's, even though it's a science fiction show, I can, I can relate so much, and they were really excited about the show, and uh, I, uh, I was on the train back to, to my hotel, and I was wondering, how did a show like this... Uh, make it so big. It had a really low budget in the first season. This is a season two premiere. Really low budget, lacked star power completely. Now the kids are famous on that show, but, but in the first season they weren't famous at all. And it has this old Steven Spielberg 80s type of science fiction uh, vibe to it that hasn't been popular in a long time. So it was really strange that this show is the number one show on Netflix. It's making them you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So I was wondering about that and what I came to the conclusion is that show had voice. It has voice. Now, voice is that unique quality that causes people to, to pay attention to something. And it would be the diff voice is the difference between uh, the Beatles singing Let It Be, you know, and at Abbey Road Studios, and me singing a karaoke version of Let It Be at some pub somewhere. There's a huge difference. You know, one of them has voice, and the other one is forgettable, entirely forgettable. And uh, I need to be honest for a second here. Uh, sometimes when I'm sitting in the back row of my California... Uh, mega church. I go to this huge church with thousands of people, and when I'm beyond the reach of the stage light, uh, um, I start to wonder if, if maybe the church is having trouble finding its voice um, in the age that we live in. And, um, you know, maybe our books are having trouble finding their voice. Our music is having trouble finding its voice. My own books, because um, I've written a couple of Christian novels as well, and I, I think we're struggling to, to find our voice, and unfortunately, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Uh, there's, uh, in the U.S., at least, and realize that a lot of things I'm talking about, I'm talking about the U.S., because that's what I know, you know, I, things could be entirely different here, but in the U.S., statistics are showing uh, nearly two out of three kids are, uh, that are raised in a Christian home, a home where faith is important, are leaving the church or leaving the faith after the age of 15, and that's tragic to me. I have three kids. And that statistic really, really matters to me. And that's why I go around the world talking about this, this topic 
because it matters. And some people just kind of ignore it and just kind of do the same thing and they go on doing the same thing they've always done and the kids leave and you know, that's life and that's just the way it is. But um, it doesn't have to be that way. So today I want to talk about finding our voice, you know, as, as Christians, finding our voice as parents, finding our voice as artists and writers and musicians and pastors because finding our voices is crucial in the times that we live in. So um, this last year, I've decided, I was thinking, okay, so uh, who is connecting? If sermons aren't connecting, because if, if you ask any kid, you know, or not even a kid, anyone, you ask them, what, what's really affected you emotionally in the last year? You know, what's really impacted you? They'll tell you maybe a song lyric that really touched them. They'll tell you maybe a movie they saw, maybe a documentary they watched, or a, a podcast that they listened to. Those are the things that are resonating in our culture today. And so we need to pay attention to that. So I spent the last year talking to um, producers and directors and screenwriters and video game producers and Christians that are making an impact outside the walls of the church. Because I wanted to pick their brains and I wanted to, to and musicians too, and I wanted to figure out, okay, why are you connecting? You know, how are you able to connect when, when a lot of our sermons and a lot of our words as parents even um, aren't connecting. You know, how do you connect? And it was really important for me. And I went into the project. It's, it's a book I'm writing called Outside Voices, which is the name of this seminar. I went into the project thinking, oh, it's another project. You know, it's a good idea. It's a good concept. And um, so, and, you know, I'll talk to these people. But it actually changed me more than I expected. It actually really changed my faith. And that's what I want to talk about today, what I learned about uh, finding our voice, you know, out in the world and finding our voice with our own kids, you know, if you're parents and finding your, uh, our voices as pastors and as teachers and as people in the workplace and how we can really connect with society. And um, So I'm going to tell you some stories today. I call my speaking appearances the stories tour because I'm not a pastor and I'm not a preacher. I just, I just tell stories for a living. So that's, uh, that's I'm going to tell you a lot of real stories today of the people I've met in this last year and some of my own stories. And I wanted to start about um, three notes that really taught me a, a lot about voice. And uh, they're from my three favorite women in the world, which are my two daughters and uh, my wife. And so uh, if you can hit the first slide there. So um, a few years ago, um, uh, my mom uh, contracted Alzheimer's. And our, our home is, uh, is uh, our family home where my mom was, uh, is a beautiful place. On Sundays, the whole family would hang out after church. We'd all hang out at my, at my mom's house. And we called her abuela because um, we're an Argentine family. So we're a big Argentine family. And every, day, every uh, Sunday after church, we'd go there and we'd have meals. We'd play soccer on this little tiny pitch. It was about as narrow as this aisle here. And we're four-year-olds. We battled 40-year-olds. And it was a wonderful, wonderful place. Well, when my mom contracted Alzheimer's, it came to the point where she couldn't... Um, she couldn't live there alone anymore. My dad couldn't help her as my dad was growing older as well and he couldn't help her anymore. And so she, uh, he had made the difficult decision to move her into a home where they can assist her. And so, um, so the day came where we had to, uh, to move her and it was a decision that we all understood because it was, it was an, uh, we understood my dad. We didn't want to understand though because that home had so many memories and that home had uh, meant so much to us. So my dad um, put my mom in a home and he decided to sell the family house. And uh, it was sad for our kids, it was sad for all of us. We understood. It, it, uh, we understood uh, my dad's decision. So the day came when we had to pack, it was after church again, and we had to pack all the boxes because my dad was going to move. And we, we packed everything up and everyone was playing. It just felt like a normal Sunday. 
And the time came to pack up my mom's dolls. My mom's had a, she loved dolls and porcelain dolls, and she had a glass case and they were full of them. And my dad decided, hey, why don't, instead of just putting them in boxes, why don't we hand them to the granddaughters? And the granddaughters can pick whatever. He did the math, and it was two each for every granddaughter. And so we were handing out the dolls to the granddaughters so they could keep two. It was special for them. And then my youngest, um, Isabella, was about six years old at the time. Um, we call her Izzy. And uh, it came time for her to, to get a, pick a doll. So we, what we did was uh, I told my daughter, hey, Izzy, you can pick two of Abuela's dolls. It's like, Abuela's going to give you two, and so you, you can pick two of them. And all of a sudden, she just froze and for a second. And uh, she just ran into my arms and just started weeping. And I think, I think moving those dolls for her, it's like, those dolls belong here. They don't belong like in my house. They, and I think she finally realized that the order of her universe was about to change. Everything was about to change. Her world was about to change and she didn't realize it until that one moment. She knew that they were selling the house. She knew that her grandmother was, had now has Alzheimer's and didn't remember her name anymore. But she finally understood when it came to dolls that that she was, uh, that her world was about to change. So I comforted her, I held her for a while, and uh, she ran off and played. And I thought she was playing with the cousins, she was gone for like, I don't know, an hour and a half maybe, and it started getting dark and it was time for my wife and I to get the kids and go home. And so, um, I, uh, so I went to look for her and I couldn't find her anywhere, and so um, she wasn't with the cousins, and I was looking everywhere for her, and finally I found her alone in the garden, and it was kind of getting dark, and she had been writing notes, and she was writing notes everywhere. She was burying them. She was sticking them between bricks and the wall. She was sticking them in trees. And she was, I don't know how many notes she, she wrote. And I, I saved one of them to show you. And it has to do with voice. So that's what I'm telling you the story. But if you can click uh, one more. There's, there's one of the notes. And I have to read it because I don't remember what it said. It says, uh, dear new owner, I hope you're enjoying this house. I'm the old owner's granddaughter. By now, I probably miss going to this house for holidays. And uh, Sorry, it still it hits me every time. Sorry, <laughs> I've done this so many times. But I probably miss going to this house for holidays and celebrations. I love this house so much. Take good care of it, please. And she had written notes like that everywhere. So being an author, I, I posted it on the note on my social media. And the note got more views and more hits and more comments. And I got more emails than I'd ever gotten on anything. And she's a six-year-old girl or seven years old, I'm not sure. And I'm a professional writer, and uh, she was getting way more attention than my stuff ever got. Um, just a simple note. And that taught me a lot about voice, because um, those notes, I think, um, they connected with people. People were telling me, you know, my mom had Alzheimer's. I know what it's like. Oh, we had to sell a house once. And people were connecting with this little girl. And uh, here I was that write all these words all the time, and I wasn't connecting as well. And she was connecting because she was honest. And honesty is one of the main things we can do as Christians to connect. Authenticity. See, we live in a culture where people, especially the, this generation coming up now, they've grown up with people selling them things all the time. Selling, selling, selling. So if we're not honest, if we come across as if we're selling something, if we're not honest about our hopes, if we're not honest about our fears, if we're not honest about our doubts, even our doubts about God sometimes, then they're going to think it's fake and it's going to sound like junk mail or spam. It's not going to sound real. See, authenticity connects, and I think that's what Jesus wants us to be. He wants us to be honest with our weaknesses and all our pains and fears. Um, so 
what does that, oh, by the way, yeah, the Bible says that we see through a glass darkly. You know, we do. We see through a glass darkly, meaning we don't understand everything. And if we come across as if we understand pain, we understand sufferings. My mom has Alzheimer's. Well, you know what? You know, we live in a fallen world, and it happens sometimes. And if we just try to explain away everything, it's not effective. You know, authenticity um, is effective. And so one of the biggest things we can say as Christians is, I don't know. You know, but I know who does. You know, I know who does have the answers because God does have the answers. He does. And that's, as artists and as pastors and as parents, we can point them in the right direction. But we don't have, and it, that relieves a lot of pressure for us. We don't have to have all the answers all the time. So I don't know is a key word to say, you know, and if we want to connect, if we want to find our voice. So what does authenticity look like? So I like to be practical and not all philosophical. The last time I was in Ireland, I was uh, having a really rough time with my writing career. It was a hard time. It was a hard time in our life, too. Our, our, our house had flooded, and uh, a pipe had burst, and it just destroyed everything downstairs. It destroyed the kitchen. It destroyed everything. It was a nightmare, and we came to Ireland, and I was driving between Cork and Dublin at the time, and I remember a song came on that I'd never heard before. And the song lyrics... Um, like, Sorry, my Kindle is, is freaking out here. Um, the song lyrics of the chorus said this. It, it, it said, and it wasn't a Christian song. It said, God, it has been quite a year. I lived a little bit and died a little more. I know that I've asked it before. Please let the scales tip here in my favor, Lord. And uh, it was a prayer, and it wasn't a Christian song at all. And I was like, wow, that, that guy's praying. You know, he, and he's not just praying, he's being honest. It's like, oh, Lord, this has been such a year. You know, can you please just tip the scales in my favor just a little bit? And uh, at that time, I, uh, I started holding back the tears in the car. I was listening to these words. I was driving. My kids were in the back seat, so I didn't want to panic them. I just had to hold it together, and finally I didn't hold it together. I just started weeping in the car. And it was healing to hear that because those words were connecting because they were honest. So when I went back to L.A. You know, this year, I, I'm going to talk to him. His name, it's a band called Sleeping At Last, and uh, the, it's a project from a songwriter named Ryan O'Neill. And Ryan O'Neill... Uh, Besides, he, he writes for a lot of movies now and TV shows. In fact, uh, hundreds of TV shows. You hear him on TV all the time. If you know his voice, you can kind of tell, like, oh, there's Ryan O'Neill again, sleeping at last. He got big um, when he was... Uh, he did music for... Twi he did a song for Twilight. There was a marriage in, in Twilight. It's a big scene in the Twilight movies about 10 years ago. It's that vampire movie, vampire werewolf movie. And he got big off that. Now he writes a lot for film and TV. And also, you know, he's on the radio and stuff too. But, but I talked to him, and when I was talking to him, uh, he was telling me um, that, you know what, he's a Christian. And he was telling me, you know what, people sometimes complain that I don't mention Jesus enough in my songs. You know, and, but he says, uh, well, let, me, let me read the quote. He said, some people might totally disagree because I don't say Jesus' name as often as they think I should in my songs, but it's my expression of my faith, so it has to be true. If I were to count the Jesuses per minute, it wouldn't be as authentic because that's not how I speak and that's not how I write. And so he wants to be true to himself, and he wants to express his faith in the way that, that's natural. And it's not something that he's putting on airs or acting a certain way because he's supposed to. He just wants to be honest, and he's honest about his pain and doubt, and he's connecting with a lot of people, and he's connecting with people in Hollywood who recognize, wow, that song resonates with me. That really connected with me. I want to put him on my TV show. I want to put this song in my, in my film. Um, and that's how a Christian can connect you know, in a secular, very secular entertainment business, you know, and it's, it's a good lesson to us. So, so 
point number one is don't lecture from above, but we need to walk alongside the people we're dealing with, whether it's our own kids, as they grow older, of course, but um, we need to see eye to eye with people more and walk alongside people rather than preaching down to them, you know, from above. So next step here is uh, I want to talk about being like a kid. There's another note that I saw, and uh, there's another note that I, I saw recently. It was from my daughter, Emma. I have another daughter. And Emma is my little redheaded daughter, and she is uh, strong, as you would think a redhead would be. She's a strong and strong woman, and I love that about her. And when she was a teenager, about not last summer, but this, uh, the summer before, so two years ago, she, um, my wife always says, when Emma gets a bee in her bonnet, she uh, won't let it go, an, an idea or something in her head, she won't let it go until it comes to pass. And I love that about her, but it's also very frustrating about her too. And she got this bee in her bonnet that she wanted to go to Africa. Now, a lot of you have probably been to Africa, so that's not, you know, it's not that way out there that she wanted to go on a missions trip to Africa. But she was young, she was 17, and we were walking outside a church, and she told me, and, and, I, um, and uh, I told her, uh, why don't you pray about it, Emma? It's, it's first, just pray about it a little bit. And she goes, Dad, I prayed about it already. I prayed about it for a while. It's like, I want to go to Africa. And I said, um, I said, well, why don't you pray about it some more, okay? Because, and then, uh, <laughs> because I was trying to stall, at least until she got a little older. And she goes, fine, Dad, I'll pray about it, but I've already prayed about it, and I already know I'm supposed to go to Africa. And I said, so I finally broke down. I said, Emma, you know what? If you pray about it more and you feel like God is telling you to go to Africa, I'll support you in whatever you feel is, is the right thing. That was a huge mistake. Because Emma decided she wanted to go to um, the Kiamiko slum, which is in Kenya, in Nairobi. And it's a slum in an area where this, our State Department in the U.S. warns Americans not to go. Like, avoid that slum. Because there's terrorist activity from, because um, uh, Kenya borders Somalia, which, is a, which has a lot of terrorist activity right now. So, and it's known for its weapons trading. And I was like, oh, great. And it's like, Emma, are you sure? And she's like, Dad, you told me. You told me that you would support me no, no matter what. See, in Emma's eyes, it was perfect because um, she's studying to be a nurse, you know, and, and um, she always has wanted to be a nurse, and she got to help a doctor that was going to go from our church, and he was going to go there, and she was able to assist. She has a sponsored child that she sponsors with her own money, and she barely makes any money at all, and she, was, and she wanted to visit her sponsored child who lives in that neighborhood. It would, in, for, in her eyes, it was absolutely perfect, but in, my, in, in her young eyes. But in my old eyes, it was uh, reckless, it was just kind of irresponsible. It's like, come on, you're 17 years old. That's so dangerous. And, and part of me was thinking, can't she really make a difference? I mean, come on, she's a 17-year-old American girl going over there. She knows nothing about the culture. She's going to be there a few weeks and come home. Like, really, is it, is it really going to be that much of a difference that she can make? That's what my old eyes were saying. But we had a deal, and so she went. And um, I um, had to speak at a conference in Sweden at the time she was leaving, same weekend. So she left and I left. She didn't have Wi-Fi for a while, so she couldn't get back to me. So there was a, some tenuous days there. I didn't know what was going on. It was about maybe three days there. And I was really worried about her. And uh, then all of a sudden, the, the, the missions organization she went with posted a picture. And uh, it just happened to be my daughter. I'm going to show you. And... Uh, that's my Emma. When I saw that, um, it just hit me. I was like, wow. Because she, she had taken a risk, 
you know, and she had made a choice. It was a dangerous choice, actually, and she had taken a risk, and she was changing the world. See, I know my daughter. I know my little girl, and that face, it, that's not, she's not smiling for the picture. That is, that's her happy face. That's her deeply happy face. She does that when she's super, super happy. You know your kids, and I know my kids, and it gave me such a sense of relief that, wow, she wanted to change the world, and she's doing it, and she was rejoicing. That's my daughter rejoicing. And she came back, and she wrote a note. Um, she posted on Instagram when she came back. Um, and uh, let me, this is the note I'm talking about, and I'll tell you about voice in a second. If you can pop it one more. It says, uh, Kenya wrecked me in the most amazing ways possible. It showed me how to love for real, and I'm starting to realize that love hurts a lot. Being so far from those vibrant smiles hurts. Being so far from the sweet voices hurts. Being so far from Jeffrey's embrace, that's her sponsor child, hurts. Everything about this love hurts, but I never want it to go away. I never want to stop loving those kids so deeply because they deserve every ounce of it. See, in Africa, um, Emma found her voice. And those words became thunderstorms, not for her. These words right here, um, those words wrecked my heart. And they reminded me as a dad that I need to be young. I need to be passionate if I want to connect. And I need to have the faith of a child. Because that's what God tells us to do. That's what Jesus said. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And uh, it really hit me that if I want to connect, if we're going to connect with this culture, we kind of have to be like kids again. And we need to be passionate, and we need to be wild, and we need to be reckless. You know, Disney um, has had that philosophy for a while, but they didn't always. They had the philosophy that um, the young at heart can drive creativity. The young at heart can make things happen. But they didn't always have that. You know, a couple of decades ago, um, that wasn't the case. Um, I spoke recently to Tony Bancroft, and he's a, he directed um, the film Mulan. And when he was really young, straight, fresh out of, out of university, he uh, was working on a, a Disney film. He had just signed up with Disney. And they were working on, Disney was working on a couple films at the time. They were working on uh, their big movie, which was Mulan. No, not Mulan. Uh, their big movie was Pocahontas. They were working on Pocahontas, and they were putting all the resources into Pocahontas. And then they had a lesser film that all the young animators were assigned to, all the people that were amateurs, fresh, they just got out of college, and because it wasn't as important, they weren't putting as much money, they weren't taking as big of a risk. It was a B movie. Um, so they had their A film and their B film. One day, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg invited, uh, he was the head of Disney Animation at the time, he invited them all in for a pep talk, beginning of the year rally, and it was a breakfast, and they all brought their breakfast uh, into this, you know, this um, cafeteria room that they had, and he went up to speak, and first he started with all the seasoned professional uh, heroes of the Disney brand that had been there for years, and he told them, great work on Pocahontas, guys. This movie is going to be a hit. It, is, it has American history, which people love, has this Romeo-Juliet-type vibe going on that people, this is going to be a surefire hit. It's a home run. Home run is a baseball term. I don't know if you know that, but home run is the best thing you could do when you hit it over the fence. And then he, he turned to the young animators, and he told them, guys, um, not everything Disney does have, has to be a hit. You know, don't worry. After this film, you won't get fired. You know, just, just hit the ball a little. If you hit the ball a little, that's good enough. And what happened was uh, those animators were actually kind of upset. Tony said that, you know, it's like, that's the pep talk, that, that we're not going to get fired, you know, when we're done with this. It's like, what kind of a pep talk is that? So those young animators, they went back. And they worked harder than ever. They worked longer hours than ever. They put all their creativity and all their passion into that lesser movie. And uh, that movie was The Lion King. And The Lion King ended up being, 
the, um, one of, at the time, it was the highest grossing animated film of all time, won an Academy Award. And um, it was done by a, a, a lot of new, young animators that just had passion. So I think if we want to connect like that, we need to, to be young again. And you don't have to be young to, to be young at heart, because Jesus tells us you know, to come as children. And we need to unlock that passion. And if we're doing something over and over, and we're just bored, we're going through the motions, then something's wrong. You know, if we're doing that in our churches, if we're a youth worker and we're doing that, if we're a worship leader and we're doing that, you know, then something's wrong. We need to, we need to find that passion again. We need to be kids again. And that's really important. Okay, so um, let me find out where, where I'm at. Okay, let's go to the next chapter here. Okay, chapter three. You know, I think um, kids take risks, and I think that's why Jesus wants us to be kids. And uh, they're willing to change. They're willing to take risks, and they're willing to change. And I think if we want to change the world, if we want to connect better, we need to be willing to change. Every time I come over to the UK or Ireland, it always uh, baffles me when I cross the street. When I cross the street, I'm always like, wait, where do I look? Because the traffic goes in a completely different direction. And all my life, all my life, it was drilled into me at school. It was drilled into me by my mom. You look left, you look right, you look left again, you cross the street. And it's just instinctual now. I've heard that so many times. So when I come to the UK, I look left, and that's, wait, this car is coming. It's, and it throws me for a second every time. And uh, I was just driving here. And uh, when I was driving here, I, coming, because I had to drive from, from Dublin yesterday to Belfast, and I went in a roundabout, and I went the wrong direction in the roundabout, and I kind of made a U-turn to come, because I realized it, because, see, all my life, when I've been driving, I've always entered the roundabouts from that side and not this side, and so instinctually, that's what I want to do, but guess what? I'm in a different place. I'm not in the same country anymore. Things are different here, and it's like that in our times. You know what? Uh, we might have been raised a certain way, we might have gone to church a different, different way, but guess what? We're in a different time. Things are different now, and we have to go against our instincts, and we have to be willing to change. Um, change is super important if we want to connect. Um, changing our point of view and taking risks to make that change as pastors and parents and artists. Um, another person I've, I've gotten to know this year, and it's been a pleasure getting to know him, is Remington Scott. Remington Scott um, is a visual effects director, and he directed... Um, one of the best-selling Call of Duty games is a video game, and he was worked on tons of movies, Spider-Man movies, and, and doing visual effects for them. And uh, he's a tech guy, he's a computer guy, and uh, he's brilliant. He's one of the most brilliant creative minds I've ever met. And uh, he was telling me that when they were, Peter Jackson was filming Lord of the Rings, and he started the Lord of the Rings, the first film, and uh, in the first film, Gollum, you know Go Gollum from Lord of the Rings, that creature that lives in the cave? Well, Gollum was CGI animated, which is all computer animated. And so they basically do it like an animated feature. They do all the, the animation, and then voiceover actors will come in, and they'll do, they'll do the vocals for the cartoon, basically, the animated film. And Peter Jackson wasn't satisfied. He's a perfectionist. He wasn't satisfied with that because he wanted to get... Um, Andy Serkis, who does the voice for Gollum, he wanted to have him uh, actually be able to act because he's such a good actor. He didn't want it like a cartoon character, Gollum. He wanted actually uh, Andy Serkis to, I think that's what his name was, he wanted him to actually act at the same time with the other actors and at the same time be Gollum. And he's, he's like, how is that possible? How can we not do CGI? How can we get, you know, uh, do the computer animation but have it real time? 
so that when he's acting, it's actually translating on, onto the computer so we have that footage. And so then he can interact with the actors and be way more real. Nobody wanted to do it because nobody wanted change. They were like, nah, no, that's impossible. All the special effects guys, the veterans, nobody wanted to do it. That's, that's, that's utterly impossible. And except for one person, one person um, that was willing to take a risk and willing to, to make a change. His name was Remington Scott that I just told you about. And he was telling me that um, he was always an outsider as a kid, but he was, he was born for this job. He was born to make... Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers is when he came in, the second film. And he was born to do this. He was born to take risks because uh, he was a computer genius. And even in high school, he made the first motion capture, capture video game when he was a teenager. It was a, and that revolutionized the video game industry when he was about 16, 17. And it's motion capture video games are what they do now. Like all the video games do that. They, they capture an actual actor a lot of times. And, and he was the first one to do that. Um, there, was a, there was a wrestling game that he made with actual people, you know, in, in the game that he captured their motions and things and put it in a game. Well, he was the perfect person to do this. Peter Jackson had heard of him and they put him on the job and he did it. He figured out a way and he developed technology that now has been used in films like Avatar and films like on and on and on. There's like countless films that his technology has over 200 patents in the entertainment business because he was willing to take a risk and he was willing to make a change. He was born for that and, and he helped that the special effects team win an Academy Award for the Two Towers, Two, Two Towers the Lord of the Rings uh, second film. And uh, we're called to take risks like him. Um, if you look at uh, the heroes of the Bible, they were risk takers. They were. There were people that, that were willing to change and take risks. You look at um, a shepherd, the only one volunteering to, to fight Goliath. You look at Peter, the only one who was willing to get out of the boat. You know, if we take risks and we're willing to change things and try something new, even if we fail, even if we fall, we're going to be like Peter and we're going to fall into the arms of Jesus and we're going to be okay. I love that verse in the Bible that says, acknowledge him in all your ways and he's going to make your path straight. I love that part, and I, I think of that all the time. He's going to make your path straight. And if you acknowledge him, that means even if you kind of mess up and you make a wrong choice, and it's like, ah, oh, I kind of blew it, you know, God will make your path straight if you acknowledge him. And my wife is constantly reminding me of that. If I don't have, I like to have 100% confirmation that something's going to happen before I go forward. And my wife tells you, it's like, just do it. And if you just do it, then, you know, God will make your path straight in the long run. You know, so we need to take risks, and I think in terms of the Christian publishing industry and the Christian film industry, um, there isn't a lot of risks being taken right now. There really isn't, and they want, to, they want to just be safe all the time and do what we've always done, and I think we need to do things differently. Um, maybe you were raised a certain way by your parents, and your instinct is to raise your kids exactly the same way, but guess what? You're in a different country now. You are, you're in a different country. Maybe you need to look the other way this time and kind of change the way you're parenting if you want your kids to grow in the faith. Maybe um, you're a pastor, a worship leader, an artist, and maybe you've, been, you've had church, it's always been the same, like all growing up, and it's been that way for generations. And maybe it's time to mix things up and do something completely different. Maybe church is going to look completely different in 10 years. Maybe it won't look anything like the church that you and I go to. And we need to be okay with that. And I'm not talking about being heretical or going off target or doing something strange. I'm talking about following the Bible, but maybe doing things differently. So I mean, we need to embrace the risk takers that are in our churches. We need to embrace them and give them a chance to fail and give them a chance to try new things and be okay with that. Because risk takers like Remington Scott, you know, they change, they change things. And change is a good thing sometimes.
All right. I'm going to see what time it is here. Yeah, I think I have time. Go ahead and go. Uh, that's Remington Scott, by the way. I didn't tell you. He's the guy on the left. Yeah, and that's when he's filming one of his movies. Okay, so uh, I'm going to go through this one kind of quick. So uh, the last note before I go into more of the entertainment business here is uh, a note from my wife. And if you can move it one more here. That's my desk at home. And uh, that pink note right there, there says, I, I love you to pieces. And it says, fear not. And uh, that note, it's really simple, but that note connected with me. That note had voice. Because uh, a while back, I was on a plane when I was a kid, actually. I was on a plane. Um, I was flying back from Europe, and we stopped. I had to change planes in New York, and we landed in New York. And when we were taking from, off from New York, the plane um, was about to take off. It was going full speed. It was about to lift off, and it suddenly just jammed on the brakes, reversed the engines, and we were all thrown forward in our seats. And New York is uh, JFK Airport's on a harbor, so the water's right at the end of the runway. And I was, we were all thinking, like, this plane's going to go off the runway. You know, we're going to skid. There's no room. There's no room to stop. We're going too fast. And uh, the pilot just had a mechanical problem, and they aborted the takeoff, which happens sometimes. It's not like our lives weren't in danger or anything, but it terrified me as a kid. I was terrified because my parents were terrified, and my sister was terrified. And so it scared me. And for the next probably like 20 years, I was terrified of flying. But the thing is, I still had to fly, and I did. I still fly it every time. But every time I flew, I would grip the seat, and I literally would be sick to my stomach. And that would last, if I was going to Europe, you know, 11 hours of just terror. And I hated it, but I still flew, and I'm glad I did. But one, um, I had to go to Munich once. Uh, we have family over in Sweden, my wife's Swedish. And, but we were using our frequent flyer miles, and so I had to go separate, so I was going by myself. And uh, I got on the plane, my wife dropped me off, as always, she gave me a hug, and she said bye, and I got on the plane, and I started, um, I started uh, looking for like, my headphones or something, and I found like, a pink note, and the pink note would have like, a Bible verse on it. Like, don't worry, you know? Like, God's with you. And then I'd go get a snack out or something, and there'd be another note that says, I love you, don't worry, you're going to be fine. And there literally was probably like 30 notes, like hidden. I don't know how she hid them, she hid them all over the place. And uh, something happened when I started reading those notes. Um, I fell asleep, and I fell asleep for like six hours, which never, ever happens to me on a plane. Uh, and I woke up, and we're almost landing in Munich. And from that day on, I haven't been scared of flying. I really haven't, and I have to fly a lot, and I haven't been scared of flying. And that's been, um, that was a really healing time for me. And see, those notes um, were, were notes when my wife found her voice. You know, she had an idea. The Bible says that whatever God whispers in your ears, shout from the rooftops. So she had like a creative idea. I'm gonna, and she's not a writer or anything, but she had a creative idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write my husband these notes. And, and she knew, you know, or God knew. And she, she acted on that idea. And because she acted on that, that idea and she believed that that whisper was from God, she believed that, you know, maybe that's a God thing. She, she followed through and it made all the difference in the world. And I don't know why. I mean, they're just notes. I don't know why, but after that point, I wasn't scared of flying anymore. And uh, see, on that day, um, my wife found her voice. Uh, Quincy Jones, who produces a lot, of, like in the 80s, Michael Jackson, he produced uh, all of his stuff and everything. He said, like, there was moments in the studio when it f a creative idea would come that it felt like God was walking through the room. And I love that analogy, like God walking through the room. Um, because... Uh, you know, in order to, to do great things for God, we kind of have to believe in magic. And I don't mean magic, I mean God's moving. We kind of have to have the faith of a child, kind of. We have to believe that, that maybe this idea 
that I have to start a church, or maybe this idea I have to write a song, or maybe this idea I have to go into the film industry, maybe, maybe that's God. You know, and, it, and uh, maybe it isn't silly. Maybe this, this passion I have for, you know, traveling overseas and, and reaching people in this one particular area, maybe that's not just a silly idea. Maybe that's God. See, you have to believe in magic. And you know what I mean when I say magic. Every once in a while, someone will have a problem with it. I'm not talking about Harry Potter or Harry Potter-type magic. I'm talking about God's leading. You have to believe in that magic because in order to shout, because God says to shout from the rooftops, we have to first believe in the whisper. And if we really want to connect, we have to really be following um, we have to be following God, and we have to be following his guidance. And only then are we going to find our voice. So let me, um, let me skip some things here. Let's go one more here. Okay, excellence. Excellence is really important. When I was a kid growing up, my sister was very creative. She's 18 years older than me, so she's a lot older than me. And when I was a kid, uh, she was really creative, and she's a musician. She liked to write, too. Uh, since our church was near the entertainment industry. A lot of um, entertainment people went to our church. And so she had this Bible study at her house. It was for creative people. And so there'd be there people like, um, uh, there was a director there. There was a composer that um, would compose music for, you know, he worked with Adele and now nowadays, and he uh, composed for a ton of movies. And um, I remember as a kid uh, being there, realizing that uh, that he composed for my favorite Disney film, and that's all I cared about. I was like, wow, he's coming to our house, and, you know, and I love Disney and my favorite film, and he did the music for it. And uh, they were all there just worshiping the Lord. I remember one time um, Eugene Peterson came to visit. He's someone that wrote the, the Message Bible. I don't know if you know that. I love that Bible. But he, and he came, and, and he was talking there, and all these creative people were there. And one commonality, it really impressed me as a kid, and I think it kind of had my creative formation, came from just seeing there. I never sat through. It was too boring for me to hear that. But I was listening from the other room, and to see all these um, people that were working in, in the creative field um, worshiping uh, meant something to me. And all these people that were in that living room were excellent at what they did. There's a commonality, every single one. And every person that I've talked to like this year, um, the screenwriters, producers, music, they're all excellent at what they do. And, and one of the things uh, we need to be, we need to be excellent if we want to connect with society. We really do have to be excellent. We have to be um, excellent in our... Uh, maybe not our production, because we might not have the funds for that, but we have to be prepared. When we're going to talk, when we're going to speak, we need to be prepared. If we write music, we need to be prepared. If we're on a worship team, we need to be prepared. If we're a youth worker, we need to really put some thought into being excellent. And you know what that means? That means sometimes saying no to things. It really does. Sometimes it means saying no to good things. Maybe you're volunteering at too many places. Maybe you're doing too much at church. Because these artists, to be good, have had, this, had a singular focus. It's like, God has called me to write screenplays. God has called me to write music, and I'm going to focus everything on this one thing. See, they all realize that they're just a piece. They're not everything. And if we're trying to be everything, you know, it's too much, and we'll be kind of subpar at everything. Um, in order to be excellent, we kind of have to have a singularity of focus. And if we want to connect, we really need to be excellent. Um, and uh, you don't have to be everything as a parent. You don't have to be everything as a pastor. You don't have to be everything as an artist. You just have to follow, find your niche. Like, what am I supposed to be to my three kids? What am I supposed to be to this church? And just do that, and don't worry about the rest. God will take care of the rest. God has a lot of people in the world, right? It's not up to us. It's up to God. So just find your little piece and do that piece well. Um, so that's what I've learned this year. That's one thing that um, meant a lot to me. So uh, one more chapter here. Okay, so there is 
uh, a group called the Blue Man Group. I don't know, have you ever heard of them over here? The Blue Man Group, they look like this. I'll show you. Okay. And uh, their performance art, but their performance art that's actually really popular. Performance art sometimes isn't that popular, but they fill arenas all over the world. They have a show in Las Vegas. And uh, they do... They do drums, they do dance, they do all sorts of things. You kind of have to see it to understand. Super, super creative. Uh, John, o John Grady is uh, a member of Blue Man Group, and when he got the job, he was absolutely thrilled. It was his dream job as, as an actor, as a creative. It's like, I got my dream job. And every show he did, he was so excited about what he was doing on stage. Uh, but then uh, hundreds of shows passed, hundreds of shows that they do. And it started turning into like any other job. And he found himself, he said that, he found himself just kind of thinking about, hey, I wonder what, where I'm going to go up to dinner. Like while he's performing, uh, after the show, wonder where I'm going to go to dinner. Or, you know what, oh man, I have that bill due, you know, the next day, I got to work on that. Or, or that TV show. He was like daydreaming in the midst of acting because it just got to be like a normal job, like everything. And just like we all daydream at work, right? And so he started to daydream and he lost that passion for what he was doing. There's this part on their show, though, that they, they bring up a volunteer from the audience. It's kind of like a funny part of the show. And the audience member sits at this table, and they kind of do this thing, like it's a date with one of the Blue Man Group persons. And the time, the time came for the show, the show that's very scripted. Blue Man Group, they know exactly what they're going to do at exactly what time. It's not improvisational at all. And the time for the show came that they were supposed to get this volunteer. So he went out to the audience, he got this young lady, and he pulled her up. And she took her sweater off before she went up. She was really excited. And he noticed that she didn't have an arm. And, uh, you know, that happens sometimes. It's fine. There's lots of people with disabilities. But in terms of the show, there were things that they were going to have her do on stage that he was thinking, she's not going to be able to do this. He looked back at his other cast members, and they, had, they were mortified. Like, no, no, don't bring her up here. She, she can't do this. And because they couldn't improvise, they had no, they, there was no plan for improvisation. So what happened was they brought her up on stage, he had no choice. And uh, the first part came where she had to open this uh, dessert that we call Twinkies. We have them at home. And it's like a cupcake. It's in a wrapper. And they were thinking, oh, no, she's not going to be able to open it. What, what's going to happen here? And she got, she got the Twinkie. She put it part, uh, the part of her arm that was still there. She put it under, and she just popped it open, way better than he could have done. And the crowd was impressed. He was impressed. He was like, wow. So he decided, I'm going to give her another one. That wasn't part of the script, but he was like, I'll give her another one. That was cool. And she just did it again. She was smiling and happy. And they did all sorts of things that she was able to do. She was, you know, of course she could. She had lived all, you know, for many years like this. A time came, though, where there was, the meal was served because they were on this, this date, kind of, this so-called date. And the meal was served, and there was a knife and a fork, and he saw that the girl had panic in her face, like, I can't do this. Nope, this I can't do. You know, I need two hands to do that. So he didn't know what to do, so he kind of thought, okay, he just motioned to the fork, and he just made something up. And he made something up where he fed her, she fed him, and they were kind of like flirting with each other, and the audience went crazy. They gave him a standing ovation, all because this, um, this woman, this outsider in the audience, went off script and caused him to go off script, and the audience roared. And, and uh, for some reason, he said he went back on stage, for the, and he started to cry. And uh, he looked back at his other performers, and they were in tears, too. Um, because this outsider had gone off script, and suddenly he had found the passion again. He had found the passion for what he was doing. And he found that joy again of performing again, because he didn't just follow the same old, same old script. An outsider had changed that. 
you know, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be the, the superstar megachurch pastor with a church of 20,000 people that's going to bring us to revival. I really, really don't. You know, I think revival's going to come at the hands of people like that woman. Um, people like that woman are going to revive that passion in us, the passion that's missing from, you know, a lot of the places we go, and the passion that's missing in our own life. It's going to be the outsiders. It's going to be the introverted kid that sits in the back row of church, the back row of the youth group, the shy kid. It's going to be the artist with all these big ideas. It's going to be the reluctant revolutionaries that have ideas so big that they're afraid to share them out loud. I think we're in an age that, that's the outside voice, and that's why I call this outside voices. I think it's, we're in a time that the outside voices are going to lead the church to revival because we live in a different country. We live in a different time, and different people are going to lead the way. There's nothing wrong with megachurch pastors. I love my pastor. I, we have an awesome pastor, and I, yeah, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying uh, I think... I think revival is going to come from the outside voice. I noticed a pattern when I was talking to all these people in the entertainment industry this year. They're all outsiders. They're all outsiders. They're all unique. And sometimes they're outsiders even in church. And they're Christians. They're full-on Christians. But a lot of times they felt kind of like an outcast in church. Remington Scott that I just told you about, the Lord of the Rings, um, we, were at, we were at coffee in L.A. And he was telling me, you know, um, I was an outsider growing up. I was a shy kid, and every time we'd play sports, I'd be on the soccer field on the pitch, everybody running around me, and I'd just be standing there not knowing what to do, and no one would pass the ball to me because they knew I wasn't any good. But do you know what he did? Uh, he would go in his room and play with his action figures, and he'd set up massive battles and movie scenes, and that's all he did throughout his childhood, just making these scenes with his action figures and movie scenes and imagining it. Guess what? He was supposed to do that. He was supposed to be an outsider. He was supposed to be introverted. He was supposed to be shy. That was a good thing. You know, it was a good thing that he was an outside voice. And a lot of times we try to change people. You know, I know my son's really shy, and there's been people, you know, when he's at youth group, telling him, you know, come up to the front and worship with us. Why aren't you worshiping? Well, he's an introvert. You know, he's, a, he's an artist. He's an introvert. He's, he's a musician. He's really creative. And, you know, that's just not his thing. You know, and I think it's kids like him sitting in the back row that are going to lead lead the church. And you know what? That all these people I've been talking to are outsiders. It makes sense. Because look at the Bible. Seriously. It's like 90% of the people that God uses are outsiders. They're not the normal people. They're outsiders. Think about it. Um, If you look at um, the Bible, you can go to uh, a stuttering expatriate, an expat named Moses, is called to lead Israel out of Egypt. You have a lanky 20-something kid named Saul that's called to be king, but he hides in the baggage because he doesn't want He's reluctant. He doesn't want to be king. And you have uh, a terrified teenager named Mary that's called to raise Jesus and bring him into the world. It's always the outsider. It's always. You have the parable of the Good Samaritan. The star is, is an outcast immigrant is the star. He's, he's loving his neighbor like Jesus wants, and he's the, he's the focal point of that. You know, Jesus is very, very aware of the outside voice. He's really aware, and he uses outsiders all the time, and I think he's going to use outsiders for this revival that I hope is coming, that I pray that'll come, because we need it. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of us feel like outsiders, and we don't think like others, we've experienced pain and heartache that no one else has experienced. We have unique ideas. So I, so I challenge you to just embrace the outside voice in you because that's what makes you unique. 
okay? That's what makes you unique, that outside voice. You might think it's a bad thing, the way you are, like, ah, I wish I was more this. I wish I was more like that person. I wish I was more like that guy. No, I, I challenge you to wish that you would be the person that God wants you to be. That's the best wish that you can have because uniqueness sells. Stranger Things is huge because it's unique. Nothing like that had happened in like 20, 30 years. No sci-fi show had come around like that. And uniqueness sells. You want to connect with your kids. You want to connect with the culture. You want to connect with the people in your high school. Um, you know, be unique. Be yourself. It's okay. You know, and sometimes that's going to hurt. And sometimes people look at you weird. And uh, when Remington Scott made those changes on Lord of the Rings, he sent all the footage to the animation department. And one day, Peter Jackson called him in angry. It's like, what is this garbage? Look at this. What is this? This is the old style animation. And Remington Scott realized they had changed all his footage back to the old animation because they didn't like change. They didn't like what he was doing because it was too unique. You know? So you might get some flack from people, but still, move forward in the direction that God wants you to go. And I'm going to wrap it up in like a few minutes here. Let's go to the last chapter here. Uh, it, I call it Run. And uh, notice I'm a writer, so I call everything chapters. I, I'm probably not supposed to call them chapters. I don't know what they're called in a speech when you have different, <laughs> different sections. Okay, so um, let me catch up on my notes here. Hold on a second. All right, so um, in 9-11, when the terrorists blew up the World Trade Center, hit, they you know, ran the airplanes into the towers, there was thousands of people running away and they were running down the streets like I would be, obviously. It was a horrible day, and they were running for their lives down the street because this horrible thing, and the, the buildings were collapsing, and there was fire, and it was chaos, and New York was covered with smoke, and you couldn't see everything, and everybody was just running away. But you know what? There were a few people that were running towards the disaster. When everybody else was running away, they were running towards it, and those people were the heroes. Those people were the heroes. And you know what? Um, our culture is a disaster right now. It's a disaster. You know, people are dying. People are hurting. And it just breaks my heart. Kids are hurting because in this world, like, uh, we have this attitude, at least in California, that um, just do whatever you want. It's like, and, and somebody will come up, like, wait, can you tell me the answer? It's like, I'm really struggling here. I'm, you know, I'm trying to decide things in my life, and I'm going to university, and I'm struggling. I don't know what to do with my life. People will tell them at the university and stuff, just do what you want. Like, whatever feels good, just do it. It's cool, whatever. Um, but we all know that that doesn't work, and it leaves you empty in the long run if you do what you want all the time. And so uh, we live in a chaotic disaster of the world right now, and it's getting really sad with, I mean, nearly two out of three kids leaving the church that had grew up in a Christian home. That's a disaster. But you know what? Instead of running away from the culture, instead of running away that that's unclean, that show's unclean, that movie's, I'm running away, we need to run towards it, and we need to influence it. And all these people that I've talked to are influencing culture because they're working in a very dark environment a lot of times, and they're working on projects that sometimes are dark, but they are running towards the culture because they feel like God is calling them to go be a helper and to go spread his light in that culture. Um, Jack Redford that I talked to you about, the composer that used to be in the Bible study at our house, he was one of the first persons I contacted this year, and I told, told him, it's like, hey, we used to come to a Bible study at our house, and uh, we had a good conversation, and he was talking... Um, he was telling, asked him, like, are there projects that you refuse? Because, I mean, there's some bad movies out there. And uh, are there anything? And he's, he's all, yeah, there have been some that have been really gratuitous in certain ways. And there's some, but you know what, mostly, I don't think about how bad they are. I think about how can I bring God's light into that project? How can I run towards the project with God's light? How can I bring hope on the set? 
How can I make a difference maybe to the way the script plays out? Can I have an influence? And guess what? Some of the movies, he's worked on the James Bond films, he's worked with Adele, and um, he actually supervised the music for the Academy Awards. And uh, he's in a very dark environment and with some films that have things that are inappropriate that he doesn't agree with. But his goal is how can I influence that? And I know not everybody agrees with that. I, I've heard people on both sides of the fence. But he's like, as a Christian, how can I be fully Christian, not compromising, but be in that environment and being an influence? Because um, we have to run towards it, not away from that. And so if you look at Jesus, that's what he did. And he got a lot of flack for it. He ran towards the culture. He ran towards the pain. And he ended up dying for it because that's what he constantly ran. He constantly chased after people. He constantly loved people. He didn't like, nope. You know, that's unclean. I'm not going there. I'm not touching that. You know, and pe- in fact, people called him unclean. You know, and so um, how does that happen, though? Because I'm, I'm talking a lot of philosophical, theoretical things here, and I'll wrap up with this. Uh, you, can, you can make that happen. I, I talked to another person named Valentina Garza, and she's a screenplay writer and a producer. Um, she was an executive. She was a producer on The Simpsons, the cartoon show, and she wrote a lot of The Simpsons episodes. Not a Christian show, as you know. And she now produces a consulting producer and a writer for a show called Jane the Virgin, which is a big hit in the U.S. on Netflix. And uh, and she, it's there's some inappropriate stuff in The Simpsons and Jane the Virgin, and and uh, but she's cho- chosen to run towards the culture. And uh, so, how do you do that? Well, there's a scene in Jane the Virgin, which is the show she's writing. She's writing for right now. And it's, it's, you know, um, I probably won't let my kids watch that show. You know, there's some things in that show. But how does a Christian influence a show like that? Well, uh, there is a scene where the, the main character's mother, Jane's mother, um, gets cancer. And she's afraid to tell her family because she doesn't want her family upset or hurt. There finally comes a time they're in their living room. And uh, the mother says, you know what, guys? I went to the doctors a few weeks ago, and um, it's cancer. I have cancer. And everybody, all the actors in the scene, the grandma's there, the great-grandma, and, and her brothers, Jane's brothers and sisters are there, they all drop to their knees, and they start saying the Lord's Prayer spontaneously. It's, it's just on cue. The minute she says, I have cancer, they, they freeze for a moment, and they all start praying. Um, they're on this very secular TV show. They're saying the Lord's Prayer. And I asked her about that scene, because I knew about that scene. I said, um, Valentina, why is that? That scene's a really... Power of powerful scene. And she said, yeah, it was a powerful scene. She said, when we were filming it, um, everybody on the set was crying afterwards, the cameraman and the director and stuff. And they were crying because um, that uh, two years ago, I, I was diagnosed with cancer. And she said, I have a very atheist family. She said, I don't think I've ever seen my mom pray. But when I told my mom and I told my family that I had cancer, everybody dropped to their knees and we just started crying out to God. And my brother cried out to God, he's not a Christian, and my mom who's an atheist cried out to God, and we were just, we didn't know what else to do. And that, so I decided to put that experience that God brought in my life, I decided to put it on screen. And that's how a Christian can run towards the culture rather than run away from it, by influencing what you can. Now guess what, she doesn't influence everything on the show. The show's not perfect at all. But she, she found a moment where she heard God's whisper, and she was able to shout it from the rooftop to millions of people on TV. You know, that somehow there's that connection that people are going to see, you know, someone praying when they need help. And, uh, and that's how a Christian can connect, and that's how a Christian could make an impact in the world. And as I wrap up, um, realize, guys, that your words, your pain, your experiences matter, and that you can be an outside voice and you can have an impact in your kids' lives, in your church parishioners' lives. Um, in your art, in your worship, you know. So be honest like Izzy. 
be wild and reckless and young like Emma and Tony Bancroft for Disney, take risks like Remington Scott, be willing to change, believe in magic like my wife did when she heard the whisper and she acted on it by writing me notes, and believe that God can use your outside voice to enact change, because guess what? The church needs you. Your kids need you. Your friends at school need you. You know, your parents need you, okay? Um, we're going through some trying times, and, and we can hold things together. We can be a light. You know, just follow God's whisper. Just do your little piece, all right? And thank you so much for listening to me ramble for an hour. I appreciate it. So.